As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer. Today we're going to do a mailbag-centric episode. Usually we do uh, a lot of kind of game game talk and then kind of one or two big focal points of the show. Uh, today I think we just felt like it might be best to, you know, we, usually we only have time to get to three or four mailbag questions and we and usually we do for that reason kind of tend to skew toward uh things that we can answer relatively quickly um and today we just wanted to give you guys the opportunity to ask some of your big picture uh questions or or uh, interests and we can spend a little more time on them dedicated to uh kind of the topics you guys want that maybe we don't always get to so anyway that's what we're going to do today the red wings did play last night at columbus they lose 4-1 uh columbus just sniped jonathan bernier four times anything we had to scored anything else notable no i think that was basically the it i think the red wings uh, the highlights for the red wings basically ended after the mantha power play goal and so uh yeah that's pretty much it from my standpoint all right so uh let's just get into the mailbag then i mean i i think uh as we were doing show prep you kind of pointed out that most of the questions seem to fall into uh, two or three different categories. And, and the first one of those that obviously was coming up is kind of a status report, I guess, uh, on, on the rebuild. And so there's a few different ways of framing it. Um, I have a personal favorite that I think we'll get to in, in a few minutes here. But, um, you know, let, let's just kind of dive in on, on, on the status of the rebuild. I mean, I, I think uh, it's I, I kind of tend to draw the timeline of the Red Wings rebuild to starting in 2018. And I don't know if that's a huge personal bias because that is literally exactly when I started covering them was the trade deadline of 2017-18. But I also look at it and I see that's when they traded off a guy like Thomas Tatar. It's when they traded off Peter Mrazek. You know, they had already picked in the top 10 the year before, but I think that's when you really started seeing 
almost every move they made look like the move of a rebuilding team. And so I guess before we dive into some of these questions specifically, is that just so we have a, a clear frame of reference, is that what we're talking about here? It started in 2018? Yeah, I think the 17-18 season is probably the the best spot where you can really say that the Red Wings kind of started. And really the trade deadline, I think, makes a lot of sense because you know that, that is where they make the, the most moves in terms of guys that they ship out and deal. And then you know, ultimately at the end of the season, Henry Zetterberg retires. And so now you can really see like, okay, we're, we're full on shifting into this, this rebuild. Um, and now the organization has bought into it and they are actively trying to do this. Yeah. Okay. So with that said, the, the question that I'll kick it off with is from fake Philip Zadina. Um, he asks, people said this year be better than last and it has, but not by much. I'm wondering if the lack of results this year, uh, sorry, I'm wondering, do the lack of results this year affect your view on the timeline of the Red Wings becoming a playoff contender? I mean, this is such an interesting question because I think, you know, you and I probably at the beginning of the season said that we didn't think the Wings were going to be much more than a bottom five team again. Uh, I think we, and, our point projections you know, were like, you know, low 40s or something. I think mine was 47, so maybe high 40s for me. I'm going to be way wrong. Yeah, and but. I think I had... <laughs> 45 or something yeah. like that. So, you know, either way, not really in, in that strong of a spot. But, you know, even to both of our point projections, I believe the Red Wings have actually underperformed yes. relative to what you and I projected there. I mean, they're coming in with a 340 points percentage, which while better than the 275 points percentage they had last year, is still very, very bad. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, does this impact what the timeline looks like? I think for me personally, it doesn't because uh, I was always thinking four plus years before you're seeing anything meaningful. And I think it's it's the same here. Uh, again, the lack of results is consistent, although it's a little bit worse than what uh, you and I thought it would be. But it still doesn't change for me uh, the fact that they're at least four years away from being a legitimate contender. And I think that that timeline still holds up. I partly agree. Um, and I partly disagree. I have seen my timeline for the Red Wings contention feel like it's slipping backward in my kind of mental conception. It has nothing to do with the team's performance. The team is exactly what I thought they would be. But I think the fact that the players who I think the Red Wings most need to be the ones who are doing what little scoring they do and and are making these you know most pronounced impacts uh, haven't been. And that is what ultimately affects things. I, I'm not really talking about Dylan Larkin here because I think while Larkin's not scoring as much, I think he's still playing more or less how you expect and need him to play. He's actually been a little better defensively this year. Um, it, puck's not going in for him. You know that that certainly is affecting the the point totals and the power play is affecting that as well. It's not so much about Dylan Larkin, but with Anthony Manta and Philip Zadina, those are the two guys that when you look at Dom Lucision's, um cup checklist uh, or contender checklist, I guess. Um, most teams that that are a top five or six team in the league that are a real contender have a certain number of wingers who meet a certain GSVA threshold. And Mantha was kind of comfortably in that tier entering this year. And Zadina was a guy who looked like he wasn't quite in that tier, but he was moving up toward being, you know, a, a kind of uh, capable top six, probably second line on a contender winger. Uh, well, now here we are and Manta has taken what seems like a step backward, or at the very least, if he's not a step backward in terms of his ability, it's just a step backward in terms of his production. Um, and, and visibly, you know, it hasn't looked like the same player. 
And while I'm certainly not punting on, uh, you know, expectations for Philip Zadina being a, a top six player, uh, it, it has taken a, a longer time for him to be that impact maker and, and uh, yeah, impact maker. And uh, I, I kind of was expecting about a half point per game season from him this year, which I think if he did it over a full season would have been a step forward for him, um, even though that was about the rate he was at last year. But he hasn't done that. And, and I do think he's a bit snake bit. He's shooting 3%. That's not going to keep up. But it does make me a little less bullish on him reaching that threshold that that for that cup checklist, um, you know, in the next two or three years when I expected them to really turn the corner. I think I had 2022-23 as my turn the corner season, and now you're on that playoff bubble. I don't think that anymore. Yeah, I think that's fair because, you know, again, how much or how quickly the Wings are able to speed this up is all about, you know, I think we've said this on the show a number of times, how much those guys uh, outperform their projections and outperform kind of their draft slot. And, and that's what really gets you going in the right direction. You know, I think a couple of years back when Philip Aronik jumped on the scene and he showed that he could maybe be a capable defenseman, a lot of people were really excited about that. I think he's certainly taken some step backs in the last two years. Uh, I think Philip Zanina then, you know, having him fall to you at six in that draft when a lot of people had him going top three, uh, was really exciting, and you're kind of hoping that he's able to do it. I think it's real important, you know, like you said, Max, you're not writing him off. He's still 21 years yeah. old, um, but six six points in 18 games, only one goal, shooting 3%. Um, not necessarily the point totals you'd like to see. I think maybe one encouraging piece of information, if you're if you're looking for it with, with Zadina, is that, um, you know, from an on-ice impact standpoint, he does seem to grade out quite yes. well in terms of kind of the best season of his career, you know, when he's on the ice at even strength, the Wings are doing uh, better things. The Wings actually have a, you know, greater than 50% goals for percentage with him on the ice at five on five. You know, that's effectively a, a clever way of me saying plus minus. So just ignore <laughs> that. But uh, in reality, the Wings are scoring more with him on the ice. It's not necessarily that they're driving play. So that may or may not hold up. Um, but for now, you know, you have to be encouraged. And if you're looking kind of at his goals above replacements per 60 minutes um, for guys who uh, kind of play the amount of time he's played, he's kind of sitting right in between John Tavares and and actually Andrei Svechnikov, which is interesting because wow. Svechnikov's having a little bit of a down year. Um, but that's where he's sitting right now. And so, you know, maybe you take a little bit of encouragement that the point totals aren't there, but the on-ice impacts are. You know, he did miss a stretch of time being on the COVID protocol so that's maybe why I, I'm still going to maintain cautious optimism. But in reality, I think you and I are saying the same thing in that I've just been four plus years, whether it's seven or five is the same to me. Um, but maybe in, in, in your eyes, maybe you're sliding back a little bit more from there. Yeah, you know, and that, that's a good point. And I definitely want to reiterate, I still think Philip Zadina is a top six winger. Like, I don't think the Red Wings missed on that pick. It's just in terms of when it happens for him. Like, what on, I was expecting him to basically be, uh, you know, very much an established, like, any team in the league by now is probably having him on in their top six. And I just don't think that would be the case on, on a lot of teams in the league right now. I still think he gets there. It's just clearly going to take longer. And that's okay. Like, you look at guys, was Anthony Mantha even any in the NHL at this age? No, I mean, Mantha was yeah. not consistently in the NHL at this age. And that's, again, because he had some of the injury issues. He yeah, broke yeah. his leg. He ended up missing some time. But no, Mantha didn't really break full time in the NHL at that point. Yeah. So for those reasons, like, I, I think we it's it's really easy to, um, as like a, a hockey public, to you see some of these teenagers come in and they just wreck the league. McDavid, Matthews, Pedersen, I think, was 20. 
you know, and, and you think, okay, well, if you're going to be a good player at 20, you, you're going to be, a, you know, this, but you know, that's, that can be true for elite players, but there's a lot of good players and even some really good players who it does take three, four years for. And, and, the, and one of the key kind of things to me is that, like you mentioned, if he's making a positive impact without scoring, that's one of those things that is encouraging, um, for the Red Wings, because that allows you to let him play through it. Like you don't have to send him down and, uh, you don't have to worry about all this stuff. He's not hurting your team when he's not scoring. You still want him to score. You drafted him to score, but you can let him play through it. Cause he's not hurting you when he's not scoring. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And honestly, you know, when I was mentioning his goals above replacement numbers, they actually look worse than they should be because of how bad the power play has been. Hmm. Um, and so, and he's been you know, good he, on the power. Play. Right. He's been good, but because the power play hasn't scored and that's the target variable for the evolving hockey model for goals above replacement, um, that's a big negative for him. In fact, he loses minus 0.5 goals above replacement per 60 uh, minutes there, which is a sizable chunk. And so if you're able to swing that back towards a positive like he has been the past two years, um, I think you're actually talking about a a relatively decent season from an on-ice impact standpoint. I know people want to see the point totals I think it'll come. Uh, you know, he is 21. Um, it's it's going to take a little bit of time. He's playing on a team that's just been decimated by injuries. I mean, he's he's struggling to find consistent line mates. That's going to be a challenge for anybody. And and really, this is still uh, he's still not even hit. Um, you know, I think he just passed 50 games in the NHL. So I think uh, he 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 will get there with time. But he hasn't even hit a full season's worth of games yet. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to the macro then. And uh, a couple questions that are kind of uh, team comparison style. The first one is from Mike Lennox. And he says, do you worry about the lack of game breaking talent in the Red Wing system, forcing them to become a New York Islanders type of rebuild? Oh, I mean, the New York Islanders have game breaking talent. They have Matt Barzell. They have Anthony Beauvillier. They have guys that can really do it. Um, But I think people give them that rap because of how they're they're coached. I mean, that's Barry Trotz's style is is suffocating. I mean, I don't think anyone would have said the Washington Capitals were, uh, you know, lacking game breaking right. talent with Ovechkin and Backstrom when they won the cup under Barry Trotz. But the style they play is suffocating. But, you know, ultimately, I get I get the point of the question and I get what they're getting at in that. Are you going to be the suffocating defensive team that is basically maybe the Minnesota Wilds more of an apt comparison uh, as opposed to the Islanders? Um, and to me, I'm not worried about it because I think some of that's just coaching influence more than anything else. I think, you know, coaches can always bring in different kinds of ideas, philosophies, things along those lines. I think we've seen that Blaschel is a, is a defensive minded coach that, uh, has done a good job with neutral zone defense, but maybe not so much from an offensive zone standpoint, but you know, sure, there's maybe not game breakers on the team right now. I think Larkin's got the speed. Mantha's got the talent when he's able to put the game there. Um, but there may be some coming. I mean, like we said, Philip Zadina is still developing. You know, uh, Moritz Sider looks like he could be a game-breaking talent from the defensive end, at least. Um, and then Lucas Raymond's a human highlight reel, and Jonathan Bergman's also a human highlight reel. So I'm not necessarily worried about it because I think – what you see in that regard is mostly a coaching influence more so than a player influence. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm going to take you down uh, Weird Street for a minute here, but um, there was some comments on one of my stories recently and a couple of fans were going back and forth. Just so you know, I read all of your guys' comments, almost all. Sometimes you post them too late and I don't go back and look, but I read a lot of your guys' comments uh, on the stories. And uh, two fans were going back and forth a little bit about the style of the Red Wings. And, and someone basically was kind of, I think I'm going to misquote them, but it was it was about like, do you want to be like the 90s Devils or do you want to be like the 90s Red Wings? And I almost wonder, like, is is there a faction of this fan base that doesn't just want to win they want to win like how they remember winning in the style of the Russian five and Iserman and Shanahan and all these just fucking studs. And it's not enough to win. You got to win and be the most watchable team in the league. Uh, you, I think, could have a good temperature for that. How do you feel about that? And am I just extrapolating one interaction and making it a narrative? No, I think that's a fascinating angle for this, right? Because... Uh... You know, if you look at a lot of the different cup winners over the years, um, there are very different teams that are able to pull it together and and win the Stanley Cup. I mean, the 90s was fascinating because, I mean, for those who were able to be old enough and remembered our, the 94-95 finals where the Red Wings rolled in and, and played a New Jersey Devils team that was barely above 500, barely made the playoffs, really only got there um, you know, because it was a shortened season and they were able to just squeak in. And then that team just comes through and sweeps the wings. And you go, huh, that's that's different. Uh, that's certainly something I wasn't expecting. Uh, and, and the Red Wings really took a huge shock to that. Um, and then more recently, if we look at Stanley Cup champions, they have been the really dominant uh offensive teams it's been the the tampa bay lightning it's been the washington Capitals, chicago it's been chicago it's been pittsburgh but there have been the mix of the other teams which is st louis which is the kings uh you know those teams that are maybe that heavier hockey suffocating defense winning on the strength of their goaltending plus back end while still being able to be aggressive offensively not quite the level of the the devils um you know, from the nineties, but even then you have to remember those nineties devils teams were still supremely talented. I mean, they had a number of, of high quality scores on there. I mean, you had your Jamie Langenbrunners, you had your Scott Gomez was quite a player back then. I mean, uh, Patrick Elias, I don't think had, had played as much on those teams, but he was still a, you know, a heck of a hockey player. You had Jason Arnott, you had, you know, I can go on and on and on about all those Devils teams. They had a lot of talent. And then even on the back end with Scott Niedermeyer, Brian Rafalski, Scott Stevens. I mean, that was a heck of a, a hockey team that could play that. Um, to my standpoint, I mean, you can win in a lot of different ways in the NHL. I think you've seen that 
over the years. You saw what Columbus did to Tampa Bay the year prior. I yes. Mean, cool, right? That's They sweep Tampa. Tampa is a supremely offensive, talented team, and they get swept. But Columbus is able to come in and exert their style. So uh, to, to quote the great and late Al Davis, just win, baby. I don't really care how it happens. Um, but I can see how Red Wings fans who have been spoiled with the flash and the flare of Datsuk and Zetterberg and Fedorov, Iserman, Shanahan, the Russian Five. I mean, you're spoiled for 30 years. Uh, I can see how you want to win that way. And that also, in my opinion, seems to be the most obvious way to win, right? These supremely skilled players. Uh, but I do think there are other ways to win. And at the end of the day, I don't really care. Just I just want you to win hockey games. I can't find the exchange. I wish I could find it because, you know, it wasn't like like super deep and meaningful or anything like that. But it just, you know, like I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. So I apologize to those who were who were the ones having it. Um, if, if you are one of the people that I'm talking about or you were part of this exchange or saw this exchange, shoot me a DM. And I would love to get like a little extrapolation on your thoughts because I, I am interested in this. I want to say really quick. um, you brought up the Lightning, and and one thing that I adore about the Lightning, and one reason that I will pick them to win the Stanley Cup uh, until they give me a reason not to, is because they're all of those things. Like, yes, they are a super offensively skilled team. They have Braden Point. They have Steven Stamkos. They have Nikita Kucherov. They also have who I think is the best defenseman in the world in Victor Hedman. They also have who I think is the best goalie in the world uh, in Andre Vasilevsky. They also have a couple of guys in Ryan McDonough and Eric Chernak and even Mikhail Sergachev who can play for any kind of team. They are just unreal everywhere. Like they have everything. And and that's why that upset by Columbus was so stunning is, is you look at it and you go like, you know, who's ever going to beat these guys? It, it's not like they're just like some, you know, cute skill team. They can crush you. They can they can smother you at center ice. They, you know, they can withstand 60 shots on goal because they have the best goalie in the world. They can do it any way. And that's what I marvel at about that team is like any kind of game you want to put them in. If you're an opposing coach, how do you game plan for them? You want to put them in a certain kind of game? They're better than you at that, too. Yeah, I mean... What Tampa had happened to them is honestly something that happened to the Red Wings a lot in, uh, in really in the 90s and 2000s because, you know, as much as they did win, they didn't win every year. I mean, and, and in fact, that Columbus series brought back memories for me of 2002, 2003, uh, where the Red Wings were, again, a juggernaut. They were the two seed in the West. I mean, if you looked at their, their top eight scorers, uh, on their team, it was Fedorov, Hull, Shanahan, Lidstrom, Datsuk, right. Zetterberg, Larianov, and Holmstrom. And then, oh, by the way, you also had Luke Robitaille. You had Steve Eiserman, who didn't get to play that many Rookie games. Rookie Datsuk. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, and that team gets swept in the first round by Anaheim. And that's an Anaheim Ducks team that had very little. I mean, they had, sure, they had Paul Correa. Uh, Jaguar but, was good, though, right? Wasn't and, that, but you had, good. yeah, that was the JS Jaguar year. And so it was just, to me, it goes to show you that. You can win in a lot of different ways. J.S. Jaguar took that team all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals in Game 7 against the Devils. And he sure enough almost pulled it off. They gave him a consummate trophy uh, uh, to thank him. But I mean, you can win hockey games in a lot of different ways. I think it is evolving to a philosophy where these more skilled teams are starting to win out more than those suffocating teams you don't have some of the advantages you had of those uh, those kind of late 90s, early 2000 teams, such as no two-line pass, 
um, you know, and things along those lines. You have fewer power play opportunities called. Um, power play opportunities are starting to go back up. Uh, so I do think it is starting to bias, bias itself more towards teams that have higher end skill, but you still do have teams like St. Louis break through. And so uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how you win. You just got to win and you can do it in a lot of different ways. I don't want to sell anybody hope, but I do just want to point out that as uh, Iserman's rebuild has gotten underway, I just want to highlight a few different players who I think fit this profile of guys who can win in multiple ways for you. And I think Moritz Sider being the most obvious, you know, when they drafted him, everyone's question is, okay, you got like this defensive stalwart. Um, I don't even know if at the time they drafted him, everyone knew that he also crushed people and, and was also a, a steamroller. Um, but so, so you have that. And then as he evolves, you see, oh, and he's on track to match or break the record for scoring by an SHL U20 defenseman. Um, that's interesting. Moritz Sider can help you in multiple ways, right? He can play multiple kinds of game. Lucas Raymond, when they drafted him, you're in love with his skill. You're in love with his sense. Well, what I quickly found out as I reported around about him in the months after is that, oh, they also really like his compete. And he's he's a mad dog. He really wants to be better. He always wants to win. And I think in the World Juniors, I saw a more complete game than I really honestly expected to out of Lucas Raymond. Uh, Dylan Larkin fits that. They just slapped the C on his chest, right? Um, there's other guys who I think fit this mold that, uh, you know, Robert Master Simone is not going to reach this like really high, I don't think like, you know, top six tier or anything like that. But this is a guy that if you add him um, to the to your bottom six or something, you know, he's a, he's known as a real competitor. And guess what? He's got some skill and he's got a good shot. He can give you offense and he's a dog like like and, and I should clarify because in scouting senses, a dog means somebody who like is dogging it. And I mean it in like D-A-W-G, like, you know, I, you know, this is the guy I want on my team. Like I want him because he's going to battle. And like, you know, if I'm playing with my dog, my dog doesn't give up when I'm, when I'm playing keep away. Like my dog's on me until, uh, until she gets the ball, right? Like that's how it goes. Um, so that's how I mean that. Like Robert, you know, a puck hound, like that's the way I'll put it. Is, is, and then, so Master Simone fits that tier in, in, a, in a different way than somebody like a Lucas Raymond does. Um, but you, you're, you're getting more and more of these guys and you're not drafting, you know, 10 of the same player every year, but you, you get enough of them in there and enough of them hit because not every prospect's going to hit. And all of a sudden you start to look like a team that maybe can play, uh, any kind of game that your opponent wants to throw at you too. And so I don't want to sell hope that the Red Wings are going to be like that. Um, you can never really guarantee yourself to be like that. You know, the way Tampa is, you have to stumble upon Braden Point and Anthony Sorelli in the third round and Nikita Kucherov in the second round. And even then you might not um, be where they're at. But um, I do think some of these guys that they're drafting have the profile that could someday project to be able to to win in multiple different ways. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, that. That's the beauty of the draft, and that's the beauty of uh, taking as many op- or getting as many opportunities as possible to uh, make those high picks, particularly in your top three rounds, which is something that, again, in the first couple of years, Eiserman's done an outstanding job of acquiring top three uh, round draft picks to give himself the opportunity to get those kinds of guys that have that compete, that intensity, but also the skill um, to be able to play in a lot of different ways. So. You know, there, there there may be something to it down the road where the Wings could win in either fashion by suffocating a team defensively uh, and, and squeaking out a victory or by just being able to pile on five, six, seven goals. Yeah. 
All right. So our next kind of team comparison one is one that uh, this uh, it's the Handsome Hockey Podcast sent me uh, a while back and asked me to uh, you know remember it for a future podcast. And I forgot it. And I'm super glad that he asked it again today because uh, I think it gets into some really interesting territory. And that is who would you rather be right now? The Red Wings, the Canucks or the Sabres? Man, this is such a fun question. And it's also like you sound like you're having fun. <laughs> It's it's just it's it's so difficult to think through this question because so at the end of the day, what's the number one thing you have to have in order to 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 rebuild successfully? The number one thing you have to have is elite talent. Buffalo has it. They have Jack Eichel. Jack Eichel is the best player on any of these three teams. Yes, they have that. Uh, Vancouver, they have Elias Pettersson and they have Quinn Hughes, who maybe the jury's out a little early because he's had such a tough start to this season. But he was sensational last year, and I expect him to rebound and find, you know, that that tier. And 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 Patterson is there as well. So Detroit of the three teams is the one team that doesn't have that. They could. We'll see how Philip Zadina develops. I don't think he's in that tier. We'll see how Lucas Raymond develops. He may be in that tier, but I don't think that he's there right now. Uh, and so if you're Detroit, you're already starting behind the eight ball in the sense of being able to rebuild because you don't have the most important thing, which is elite talent. However, Detroit does seem to have the most competent front office. They seem to have the best draft capital. They have the most draft picks uh, coming up. They made the more p- the most picks in the last year. They have the most salary cap flexibility. So Detroit's kind of in position from my standpoint that while they don't have elite talent, they are in position to turn it around quickly by, or I should say they're in the best position to get more uh, because they have so many opportunities to pick. Whereas Buffalo and Vancouver, they don't have as many opportunities. They don't have as many draft picks. They still have, uh, they still have most of their own. Um, And then when you're comparing prospect pools, you know, I think I think Buffalo's got a couple of, of players. You know, Jack Quinn's in there. Dylan Cousins is uh, is going to be great. You know, Rasmus Asplen maybe. I like Ryan um, Johnson. Yeah, right. You know, Ryan Johnson's a, a solid player. They have JJ Paterka as well. Yep. You know, so 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 that's a solid pool. Um, I'd still take Detroit's ahead of theirs, uh, but Vancouver. You know, Hoglander. He's had a good start to this season. I think Pud he Colson. looks legit, and then Pod Colson, but kind of after those guys, I'm not sure that they have, you know, really the, the same depth or, or capacity. I mean, so that they might be in the, the worst position from my standpoint, despite the fact that they have Pedersen and Hughes, they still have a lot of issues with the salary cap moving forward. And they, they, they're going to have to pay Pedersen and Hughes this season. So, you know, I honestly, I might say that if I'm picking out of these, I might pick Detroit, even though they don't have the elite talent, but I do think you wouldn't be wrong to pick Buffalo here. The other thing Detroit has here is flexibility. And I, I think that is uh, an important thing for to assess in all this too. I mean, there, there is kind of different ways of looking at this. Who would you rather be a fan of? Who would you rather be the GM of? Who would you rather be the coach of? And who would you rather be a player on? I think you can get different answers to some of those questions. You know, the, the Red Wings have so much more salary cap flexibility than the Canucks do. And the Canucks are going to have to pay two young stars uh, this offseason uh, the Red Wings are going to have to pay Philip Hironic and Tyler Bertuzzi, but that's not the same price tag as you're talking about for Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. You know, the Sabres are in a position where they have Jeff Skinner's contract haunting them right now, and it's like two years into it. 
Um, you know, Jack Eichel's contract is high, but I still think it's a positive value contract by by quite a bit, even in the $10 million range. Um, and I don't think they really have anyone they're going to have to overpay. I mean, Darlene's contract is up this year. I'm curious to see where that lands. But uh, overall, I don't think Buffalo's cap situation is all that bad. If you can get out of Skinner, which you probably can't, and so that sucks. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's different things to like about this. I mean, I I agree. If I could take one of these players and just steal them, and I'm starting in a if I'm Seattle and I want to just steal one of these guys, I'm taking Jack Eichel first. Darlene's not far behind that for me. You know, Pet- Pedersen is in that is in there too. Um, Darlene, I think I'd still take above Hughes. And all of those guys I'd take above. Darlene above Hughes is bold. I think I would. I think I would. I mean, I, I still believe it in the overall game of Darlene coming around. I, I I, will grant Quinn has been a better player so far since their draft days. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's a fascinating whole subset of conversation there. But I mean, it's tough. This is a really tough question because of, of that challenge of the fact that the Red Wings of the three teams has probably the lowest talent pool right now, but they have all the other pieces that if and when they are blessed with elite talent, whether that is Philip Zadina finding another year, Lucas Raymond uh, coming over, Moritz Sider coming over, um, they are in the best position to do something with it. Buffalo is not. They have, you know, like you said, Max, uh, Jeff Skinner's deal runs for years it's in fact the longest deal on their uh their their cap portfolio you still have Kyle Ocposo for two more years at six million um, that's not pretty you have Rasmus Ristolainen for another year at 5.4 you know you've got uh you just have a lot of pieces that aren't great but it's still not as bad as Vancouver's situation and so that's where I think maybe if I'm ranking these I'm going to go Detroit, Buffalo, Vancouver, just because I think if you took over Buffalo and you found a way to get out of the Skinner deal, you would be in a pretty good spot. But Vancouver just seems like a bit of a mess. I mean, JT Miller, I don't know what's happened to his game. He's owed $5.25 million for another couple of years. Uh, you know, they've got Antoine Roussel for another $3 million next year, Jay Beagle for $3 million next year. Uh, you know, they're already talking about trading Jake Vertanen. Uh, who hasn't panned out to be what they thought he would. I mean, Tyler Myers is $6 million for three more years. Nate Schmitz got $6 million for another four years after this year. I mean, Holtby has been terrible, and he's got four point three for next year. So you, you just don't want to be Vancouver, I think, even though they have probably the second-best prospect pool, uh, second-best talent pool. They probably have the worst cap structure of those three, and I think that's enough for me to put them third right now. Their stars aren't disgruntled though and that's a factor too like if, if i'm taking over as gm of buffalo you know as kevin adams is he walks into a situation where midway through his first season everyone in the league is talking about whether he's going to trade his franchise player and that is extremely uh you know that's a drag on everything you know like you're in this good situation but you might have to blow it up and start again and oh by the way as much as i am shocked that i can say this when comparing anybody to vancouver I think Buffalo's got the most impatient fan base in the league right now. Like they are ready for something good to happen there, and they they need it to happen yesterday. I mean, they've suffered. Yes. For a really. I, long oh, I sympathize. Time. I sympathize. They've suffered for a decade here. I mean, it really. There were some really good Buffalo teams in the late two thousands, and you know the the team that was with Chris Drury on that team. I mean, that was a heck of a hockey team. And now they've just suffered in purgatory for ten years. They tried to sell all out. Uh, 
you know, for Connor McDavid, they get a great consolation prize in Jack Eichel. And then they just can't put the pieces around them. And so then they get another first overall pick in Rasmus Dahlin. And they just can't put it together. And now, you know, Dylan Cousins looks like a player. I mean, J.J. Paterka looks like a player. But they take Jack Quinn a little early, and that's that's a little surprising. I mean, with Marco Rossi and Cole Perfetti on the board, like, well, I'm not sure uh, what was necessarily being thought of there. Um, and, you know, so it's it's all fascinating to see. But I, I still think they're in a spot where if the right person came in, could talk to Eichel, you're still going to get Eichel's best years. Eichel's best years should arguably be this year, the next year, and the year after that. And a guy of his talent is probably going to preserve his elite talent until he's probably 32, 33. You still have time to make this work. Um, And you don't have that much to buy your way out of. However, you know, it's it's still a huge challenge and Buffalo's fan base is, is very impatient right now. I think I'm at Buffalo number one, honestly, but I realize the insanity of saying it like, and if they, if they have to trade Jack Eichel, I I rescind this and I never said it, but I I really like the collection there. I mean, I I like Eichel. I like cousins. I don't know what's going to happen with middle step, but but you you look at this and you have the two hardest things to find. They don't have the goalie, but they, but they have Eichel and Darlene and the two hardest things to find. So does Vancouver Patterson and, and Hughes. But then I also like, you know, I think Cousins can be a better version of Horvat, right? Uh, I think uh, there's some good wing talent there. I don't know what Jack Quinn's going to become. I can't believe they didn't take Perfetti or Rossi. Um, or maybe or Seth even, Jarvis. <laughs> or, yeah, or Seth Jarvis for that point, who's tearing it up in Carolina. Or Anton Lindell, your guy, uh, who's who's having a pretty good year in Liga. Uh, or even Yaroslav Oskarov, I guess, at that point. Like, you need that franchise goalie. I know you would have hated that. that I mean, then, I then they'd have been last on your list, right? Yeah, absolutely. They would have been dead <laughs> um, last. Especially if you pass up those four guys for Askarov. So. That's right. But they're going to get another top pick this year. Let's say they add, you know, an Owen Power or a Simon Edvinson or a Brant Clark or whatever to the back end. And then you've got a really impressive top six. You've got Paterka coming uh, in, a, in a couple years. Uh, you, you've got a, a, a couple stars on your blue line. I think I'd go Buffalo number one and i just don't know how to order detroit and vancouver because vancouver's cap situation is rough and i don't know what's going to happen there like i I can't fathom that they're going to be in that big of a hurt when you have guys like Patterson and hughes and and oh by the way besser and uh and horvat aren't that old either but they've still got a lot of pieces to add i do like pud coles and i think he'll help but i don't know i i might put detroit in the middle but that seems crazy just knowing what we know about Pedersen and Hughes. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. Like, it's it. the totally logical thing would be bet on the elite talent, and of which Buffalo has it, Vancouver has it, Detroit doesn't. Um, however, I'm going to be a little, I'm probably going against conventional wisdom here. Max, I actually think you, you did probably what I would have done if I just did this normally, um, which is bet on the elite talent. But I bet on variance, where the Wings have the highest capacity to just all of a sudden shake things up the minute something hits it. I mean, cause if they remind me a little bit of, if you look at Carolina and like, uh, 2016, 2017, um, and then 17, 18, I mean, that wasn't a very good team at all, but they were in prime position to turn things around. They did have pieces that Detroit doesn't have. They had Slavin already. They had Pesci already. Um, you know, they had Aho already, 
um, in the system, pieces that Detroit doesn't have, although we don't know what Raymond Bergeron and Sider are going to be. But as soon as Andrei Sveshnikov hit, they could immediately flip the switch in a manner that Buffalo and uh, Vancouver can't. Um, But that being said, Buffalo and Vancouver have those pieces. So I think it's a fascinating question because I don't know that there's a wrong answer. Maybe taking Vancouver first would be wrong. Yeah. All right. And then we'll wrap up the rebuild topic with Phil Roberto. Uh, He wants us to do an evaluation of the rebuild up to this point. Um, Is it an effective rebuild if if the Red Wings are not playing many young players until the recent call-ups of Fechnikov and Rasmussen? Does it make it a real rebuild if you're not playing some young players? Uh, I mean... Yeah, it, it's still a rebuild. Yeah, uh, I agree. It does, nothing changes. I think, you know, it's more of an indictment of your rebuild if your young players haven't necessarily wrestled those roster positions away. I think, you know, maybe that that's a little problematic. But no, at the end of the day, that that that's not a huge issue in my standpoint. I don't think so either. I mean, the, assessing the rebuild to this point, could they have played uh, more young players along the way? It's possible, but I think... This is a dynamic that I've observed is fan bases who have like like prospects just sometimes don't pan out or they don't hit their ceiling or or they outright bust or whatever. And when you are when you look at markets who slow play their prospects and they don't pan out, then the reason the prospects didn't pan out is because you slow played them. And when you go to markets who rush their prospects and they don't pan out, then the reasons they didn't pan out is because you rushed them. And so an example here might be Edmonton and Yessi Pugliarvi. And, and like, you know, you get the sense that like uh, if, if Edmonton had handled Pugliarvi different, could things have, have been better? Maybe or maybe like Pugliarvi just was always going to take longer and like it was going to take him until this late, even though he was a top four pick to, to be this. Um, and I, I think in Detroit, you hear a lot of sentiment that like, you know, gosh, like if, if you know, why would if, if Sveshnikov scores three points in his first two games, why wasn't he on this team all year? And I'm not even necessarily disputing that. Like, it, I think there's a, a case for it, but I just, you know, and, and Sveshnikov's getting pretty late here. Um, but, you know, like, I don't think that it necessarily means that everything that's happened with Sveshnikov for the past three years, some of it, which was injury related, actually two years of it, which was injury related, could have been avoided had they called him up after his first season in the AHL. Like, I, I just, I, I'm not ready to make that logical leap yeah i mean i'm with you and this happens everywhere i mean you look at every rebuild that's ever happened this this is just the nature of of how it 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 tends to go um you know again you know i like to pick on carolina because they're an example of a team that's done the rebuild correctly and if you go back and you look at their 16 17 season i mean ron hainsey 35 year old ron hainsey was playing more minutes than noah hannafin you know on the back end for that carolina team ron hainsey was playing 22 minutes a night uh, for them, which is just wild. I mean, you had Victor Rask playing more minutes than Sebastian Ajo and, and Tevu Teravina. So it 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 happens. It's always going to happen. I don't think it's necessarily problematic. Uh, you would certainly like to see those guys just so you know what you have. But the fact that they haven't wrestled those positions away, I think, is is more of an indictment on what the organization maybe considers them to be in the long run. But even then, I, I still don't see it as, as hugely problematic. A guy that I'm most fascinated with uh, about this is Chalowski because he's a guy that broke camp with the team. So it's not like he wasn't getting an opportunity. But then I can also really buy the case that he's a guy that if you just let him work out, work work stuff out at the NHL level, could it have been different? I can really see both sides of that one. Like, And I'm not trying to be a fence sitter here professionally, but um, I, I can see both sides of it. Like, I, I almost, you know, I certainly think 
early in Chalowski's career, I jumped the gun and was like anointing him a future top four. I might have even written an article saying he was going to be a top pair defenseman in the first two months of his career. And that was my bad. Like that was just a, a, a irresponsible leap to conclusion. Um, and so maybe, maybe partly because of that, I always was kind of like, why don't you just let him work this out up here? And then in, in the last year, I've maybe been swayed a little bit the other way, which is that, well, he broke camp with the team twice. It's not like he didn't get an opportunity. And, and so th- then there's that side of things. So if it sounds like I'm fence sitting, it's because I've held both of these two opinions in the last two years at different times. And, and I think both are kind of credible. I'm at the point now where, you know, I, I think you might as you drafted this guy with a first round pick. And, and I know Christian juice is kind of filling the role he would have. You claim Christian juice off waivers. Why not just let Chalowski do what Christian juice is doing? But I think a lot of people would rather see Chalowski in place of the Kaiser or in place of stall. And I can understand why the, from the Red Wings perspective, they don't want to sacrifice what they feel like is the identity. They want to develop their, roster players who are going to be around in in favor of just finding minutes for guys that they spent a first round pick on like I don't think you want to have any kind of sacred sacred prospects here who you you sacrifice the the vision for just to get them in a good position I feel the same way about this is this is a topic we had a couple of years ago when we were talking about you know or maybe yeah I don't know how long it was ago which line Zadina should be on and it, I didn't think you needed to rush Zadina onto Dylan Larkin's line because the goal of of the lineup that night was not what, what's going to get Philip Zadina the most points. The goal of the lineup is, it's twofold. It's win the game and develop your players. And Philip Zadina, um, I think, you know, has the points, have the points come yet? No, but playing on the third line, I don't think stunted him. Like, I don't think that's the situation here. And it, it didn't last that long. He was in the top six fairly quickly. So I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling now, but I, I just think that there's no re- one right way to do it. And the dynamic always is a push and pull from player and organization. Yeah, I I completely agree. And the Wings have been through this over the years with a number of guys who were very talented. I mean, you know, a guy that comes to mind is Ryan Sproul. Uh, Ryan Sproul was OHL Defenseman of the Year. Uh, I mean, very, very talented hockey player. Um, You know, was a second round pick for Detroit back in 2011. But he... He just was never able to consistently crack the lineup and ultimately was dealt, uh, you know, five years after he was um, drafted by the Wings because he couldn't really hold up his end on the defensive side of the puck. And, you know, I think it's it's been a similar frustration for Chalowski, and I think the Wings are trying to let him sort it out. Um, I do think at some point you are going to see him in Detroit because it is a contract year, he, you probably don't want to just continue extending in this regard um, without necessarily seeing him at the NHL level versus, you know, maybe being able to showcase him uh, to a certain extent. But yeah, I mean, I think time is uh, certainly running out for him. And that's not why, or that's maybe more so why I'm not like jumping uh, up and down for him to be in the NHL lineup, because at least with the results we've seen, it's not like he hasn't been given an opportunity. He just hasn't performed uh he hasn't given you good results and i know you can make the the counterpoint that well the veterans aren't really giving you good results either but you know to a certain extent they're at least playing the style of hockey that jeff blashell wants to play which is this more conservative defensive style that's not going to give you much flair uh and and so i think it's better to just let chalowski sort himself out in grand rapids which 
to his credit, he has done a very nice job so far uh, at the start of the season. All right, let's uh, transition into kind of the other topic that we'll go into today. We already covered, there's a lot of questions about Zadina. We, I think we already covered that in pretty good depth. Um, the other one was about, from Alex Oliver, what are reasonable RFA deals for Hironic? And as we were kind of picking out some questions before the show, uh, you were throwing out some really interesting stuff from what some of the contract projection sites have for this that... Uh, let's get into that right now. What are some real, what are some RFA projections for Philip Aronik, who is up for, for a new contract this off season? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, doing my homework on these questions to make sure I sound intelligent on this podcast and I, I something I never a, do <laughs> take a perusal over to evolving hockey and uh, look at their contract projection model. And, uh, they have Philip Aronik as six years, 6 million as the average annual value. And, and so that, that kind of floored me. I actually almost fell out of my seat when I saw that and had to, you know, quickly pick my job off the floor. But then, you know, you step back and you think about their model, their model's not necessarily indicative of what they should be paid. Their, their model is indicative of how they, how an NHL team is likely to pay a player. Um, and so the fascinating thing with Philip Ronick is, even though his on-ice results haven't been there, I've talked about that at length. He plays a lot of minutes. He plays the, you know, he's a top 20 minute eater and he scores a lot of points. And so those tend to be two of the most important factors that come when you are projecting a contract for a defenseman or if you're looking at um, a, a team signing a defenseman, it tends to be that, uh, exactly that. And so I think it's, fascinating but that contract number would certainly uh give me pause for sure yeah so what does evolving hockey have down on a bridge deal two or three years what would their projection because they they do it by year they tell you what what the projection would be based on each length right so if you went for two years they have an average annual value of 3.1 million which is quite palatable and if you go for three years it kicks up to 4.9 million so you know my opinion would be shoot for that two year, three to three and a half million dollar deal as a bridge deal. If you're going to go the bridge route. Yeah. And those just seem much more reasonable. And, and, and especially because what we've talked about with Ron, we've obviously gone back and forth a little bit on this show about, you know, his value and his place going forward. I still think he's long-term like a top four guy that you're going to want in the picture, but I'm not ready to pay him like it concretely for that kind of length. If I'm Steve Eiserman, like I really want to see, you know, two two more years, three more years, let him slot in where something closer to where he's going to slot in once more at Ciders in the picture. And then you can decide what, what, what you're going to pay him with some term. But I think two years is probably, two year bridge is probably the ideal three years. If you really need to, I think that makes much more sense. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm going to use your favorite term. I need, I, I want to see what it looks like when he gets dragged up by somebody. Um, and, and I think once you bring more at Cider over, and you can potentially have some flexibility uh, to to move some guys around with Cider. You know, I think you and I kicked around maybe John Merrill as being a good partner for him. If you go that route and you maybe get Troy Stetcher uh, to play a little bit with Philip Peronic, allow Stetcher to be the guy that skates a little bit more, pushes the puck up ice, allow Philip Peronic to do a little less skating, save some wear and tear, um, you know, maybe be a little bit more the defensive-minded guy. I think he'll get some better results out of that. And then you maybe have a better idea of what you want to pay him. But I think right now in his role with his workload, uh, I do not want to pay him to be a number one defenseman because he is not a number one defenseman. I think that's 
I think that's fair. I mean, I, I don't think you can only pay your number one defenseman. Like, you know, you still want guys and, and like, you know, Brett Pesci, I'm not saying Philip Hornick is Brett Pesci, but like an example, like Carolina extended their D young before they quite knew exactly what the impact was going to be. That's how they got really good deals on guys like Pesci. Slavin turns into a number one. Pesci turns into a really solid top four. I can buy Pesci as a top pair caliber defenseman, but he's a second pair guy for them. It's why they're one of the best blue lines in the league. Um, and I'm fine to pay a guy like that, but I just want to know, I want to know concretely how they fit before I pay him. And I, if I'm Steve Eiserman, while Philip Peronik is unquestionably the Red Wings number one defenseman on the NHL team right now, it's just not going to be the case long-term. I'm not going to pay him like the number one D, uh, when he's not going to be my number one D pretty much the second more outsider gets to Detroit. Not the second. He's going to take him a year or two to adjust, but you know, not too long after more insider gets to Detroit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that, that makes sense. I mean, when you think about Carolina, you know, they, they did have a good way of extending those young defensemen early. I think in their respect, Slave and Pesci and those guys obviously showed a lot more yes. earlier yeah. to, to merit that. Um, I just have a really tough time with Philip Ronick. I think that's abundantly obvious to anyone who listens to this podcast and, uh, has to suffer through my tweets on Twitter. I, I have a difficult time evaluating him because I don't see the tools there. And so that's where I think if you're Eiserman, you know, you get through with your bridge, you, you get a better sense, you get more data. I mean, you, that's, that's at the end of the day, what you're looking for is let me just get more data points on this guy and let me get more data points potentially where I'm not asking him to tread water and keep his head above the water. I have more guys around him a little bit more talent and see what it looks like. So I know now you run the risk for sure. If he comes out, there was a 55 point season out there where he, uh, you know, plays quite well at five on five and he does it from like a third pairing role or I should say third D role, uh, first uh, slot on the power play. Then, yeah, you may be in a little bit of trouble that, uh, you, you lost your gamble. However, I think the gamble here will work out in Detroit's favor because I'm, I'm not sure that that's in his, his repertoire of being a possibility here. The other thing is, and God, I do not want to start this on another player with given how this fan base has sometimes reacted to anytime someone's name uh, and the T word gets mentioned is if you slow play this and go the bridge route and he puts up the counting stats that will get him paid, but you're still not convinced you can at that point, you can find a trade that will get you something different. You can pivot out of it that way. I mean, that's, one of those situations that we've talked about uh, on this podcast in the past of like a good GM makes good decisions with their backup against the wall. Okay, so what, what do you do if you have a defenseman who is putting up huge minutes, huge points, but you're not sold that they're, you know, uh, of the same kind of overall situation, you know, uh, impact that, that others in the, that situation with those stats would be like? You, you take a breath and you say, okay, that means I can probably get something pretty good. I'm not by any means starting a Philip Peronic trade rumor. When when my trade tiers come out, he will be firmly in the staying put tier. But as we talk about what to do if if, if you bridge him and he, he his points really pop, well, at that point you have the choice. If you believe in it, if if it, if if he pops and you believe in him, you pay him. And if he pops and you're still hesitant, you know he's he's going to be a young right-handed D. Hit, survey says those guys have markets. All right, folks, you heard it here. Max is fielding trade <laughs> offers for Philip Peronic. So uh, just just go ahead, get him in, send him his, send him his way. All right, Danielle, you're going to have to edit that out. I'm not dealing with that. 
All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us today. So uh, everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, if, if we didn't get to your question, I'm sorry. But uh, I, I thought that was a fun way to really dive into a few of these questions that normally we can only spend four or five minutes on. And uh, I wanted to give it kind of closer to an hour today. So I really enjoyed it. Thanks for being patient with us. Thanks for uh, dealing. I've gotten a lot of Twitter questions about uh, <laughs> about whether uh, I'm sick right now. The answer is no. I'm just recording in a different place because I'm dog sitting and I'm trying to keep the dog as happy as possible, as you probably have heard throughout this episode. I'm failing at that, but uh, you know I, I'll be back in my normal recording spot uh, for the next episode, and so hopefully my voice sounds a little more normal to everybody. So the, the Red Wings, uh, their next game is at Carolina. It is Thursday. It is... Uh, Thursday night, and it is potentially the Svechnikov Bowl. We don't know for sure. Jeff Blaschel today uh, was not committing to whether or not he would uh, be putting Evgeny in the lineup. Evgeny did practice with Darren Helm and Luke Lindenning, and so that, to me, is a little bit of a good sign. He was at least practicing uh, like somebody who's going to be in the lineup. So if you're someone who's really hoping to see the Svechnikov Bowl, I think you're probably quite happy to hear that. Um but we'll see. I mean, it, it's going to be, uh, it, as you saw in the first Red Wings Carolina game, uh, Carolina puts a, a lot of shot volume up and it, it can be hard to, uh, it can be hard to keep pace. It, it, you you got to have the recipe that the Red Wings had in, in their second game of the season when they just hung around, hung around, hung around, and then stole one. So that's the recipe. Uh, and if, if you want to watch that, uh, which I'm sure you do, if you listen to this show, uh, you may also want to bet that, and you can do that at betmgm.com, promo code WINGSPOD, which with whatever you place, and hopefully you win some money. 